Good morning and welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome here once again to our sacred special place where we get to talk about a song of ice and fire, we get to nerd out together and do all these cool things. What fun it is to be back. Hello, I am your jolly green giant, your head green person here on the aisle, ready to take you through some more A Song of Ice and Fire, how lucky we are. We're good, we're ready, and the sun is shining over here in lovely old England, so we know we're ready to go. Ah, good to be back, isn't it? Thank you all for coming back to join me once again, or if you're new to the aisle, welcome, welcome, welcome. Lovely to have you aboard, of course. It is wonderful to be back, it is great to be talking to you all again. As I explained on that little mini episode released just before this, lovely break, very much appreciated. Thank you all for being so patient, and thank you all for putting in your opinions and letting me know what you wanted, and hopefully you're as excited as I am about where to go from here. Don't get me wrong, it was lovely to have a break, I very much enjoyed it myself. I hope you all did as well, but now we're ready to get going on a new era for Scraps and Scrolls and the other faces in general as we look forward to the Winds of Winter preview chapters, which we will get to today. But first, of course, thanks have to come. No need to you all for being here, coming back or joining us and the downloading and the commenting and the messaging, which is always so very much appreciated, but especially to our wonderful, generous patrons that keep this podcast going, that bring me back here again. My deepest thanks must go to each and every one of you. I especially want to shout out some names here. Names you will know and love, like Glenn T, Aegon the Sick, Lord Commander, Namian Dark, KM, Archmaster June, healer of the lesser poxes, and new to the Green Trunks tier, we'd like to welcome Lomas Rider, survivor of the Yeen Sleepover. Great name, well done. So welcome Lomas, welcome back one and all, thank you yet again. So just in case you haven't listened to that little mini episode and you're not sure what's going on, I again thank you for getting your opinions known across the Google form or by messaging me or whatever it was. So it's very, very kind comments included in many of those, but I have settled on some decisions of where to go next. First off, well, the choices were clear, you made your opinions known. We must continue to follow History of Westeros as they dive into the Winds of Winter preview chapters. Obviously, that's what we're here to do today, so that one's covered. But we'll also be having some more stuff here on the Isle of Faces. These episodes will be shorter, obviously, so I'm going to have some more time, some more room to get out more shorter episodes of different topics. We're going to have these regularly, every week for the most part. There might be a little break here and there, but also different kind of episodes, like I say. So then, we've done our recall, we've got everybody here, that's wonderful, we've all grabbed a seat I hope, we're ready for what's coming next, and that is, as the name would suggest, the Winds of Winter preview chapters. The few select chapters that George has released in various forms over the number of years since Dance came out, we're going to give them the full Scraps and Scrolls treatment as we would have any other chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire, as we, well, we have for every other chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire. It'll be different, of course, because they're not real yet, they're still previews, they could all change, we'll get into this in a second they're obviously isolated bubbles for the most part we don't have all the connecting parts and we don't know what's coming after so there's only so much we can do with them but we'll do as much as we can and just in case you're unaware these chapters let me list them out for you here so over the coming weeks this isn't an order, but over the coming weeks, this is what we're going to cover. And most of these we've mentioned at some point through Scraps and Scrolls anyway, especially the ones relating to dance. We've had really long guesses, we might have mentioned them very briefly, but they've all come up. But either way, just in case you don't know, here they are. So we'll be covering Theon, Ariane 1 and 2, Victarion, Barristan at least 1, I think there is actually 2 on that, I'll have to check, Tyrion 1 and 2, you're here today, Mercy slash Aya, Elaine slash Sansa, and The Forsaken, which you'll famously know is Aaron. Greyjoy, much to my chagrin, but there we are. So we're talking seven or eight episodes there. I'm not exactly sure how Aziz is going to chop it up. We've got another good few episodes to get through. It's all very, very exciting. 
A very different experience now lies ahead of us, at least in terms of a reread project. I suppose now it's more of a pre-read project really, isn't it? Perhaps we should pitch Aziz on Valor pre-readist instead, that sounds pretty cool. Anyway, not only will our approach and episode structure be different from here on out, but just the general sense of the thing. For the majority of you, reading through books 1-5 to five was something you had probably done multiple, multiple times before. You had a pretty good sense of the overall, you knew basically what was happening around the story at that time, and, and sometimes in specific chapters. That sense won't be nearly as strong this time out. That's for the majority, and I include myself in that. We've probably had a look at these maybe once or twice, maybe we've only glanced at them. I personally would be completely clueless to tell you what was going on without actually looking, and some of you might not have read them at all. So we have a different atmosphere and a different setup, but it is still scraps and scrolls at its core, and it's, and it's great fun to be doing so with you all yet again. So thank you for joining me in that once more. Now before we even get into the analysis of these new chapters, we first have to set up some ground rules. And the most important of which, I have to say this at the beginning, is don't believe a word of it. What we're going to read, what I'm going to say, don't buy into it at all, because this could have all changed exponentially by the time that Wins actually comes to us. None of it is set in stone, and George has been known to release chapters before in previous books and then change them later. Maybe in a small way, maybe in a big way. All we know for certain is that nothing is certain, so just be sure to carry that mentality with you as we go here. These are not polished final product chapters that are just going to turn up the, exactly the same in the books. Their content might change, their length could change, where they appear in the book or in the timeline or they could be merged with one another, we just don't know. This time round, we're all Jon Snows. And bear in mind that many of these preview chapters are really, really old now. A couple of them are nearly as old as Dance itself, not only in terms of when they were released, but when they were actually written, because we know some parts of Winds were supposed to be in Dance and got cut later, so they were obviously written at the same time. And we can only guess at what different directions George has taken his plots in the years since, whether that's because of the show, or just the amount of time that's passed, or his gardening style, or whatever else. But none of that has to say that these are worthless, of course not. No, there is plenty of fun treasure to be uncovered just yet. Besides, being near the beginning of the story protects them from too much change, most directly correspond to plot threads from the ending of Dance, so George has been quite clever in only giving away so much. He's obviously not going to give us true hints of major plot threads for later on in the big parts of the book, but we can identify what we think are signposts, as we always do. And some of these chapters have their own contained arcs. They're still fun chapters, fun stories in and of themselves, so there's much for us to see. And what we have to start with today, actually, as we dive into these preview chapters, is an excellent example of what I've just said about these being untested waters for us. Because Tyrion 1 of the Winds of Winter preview chapters isn't even a proper chapter, not even by pre-release standard. And what I mean by that is that there's no written version of Tyrion 1 that's been released. What we have is fan transcripts and summaries from a live reading that George did nine years ago now. So you can see what I mean about not buying into what we have here too much, although we're still going to enjoy it. This is a very different experience for us trying to analyse and read through and do our normal scraps and scrolls thing. Obviously, you can't go line by line when there are no lines. And we could also call into question the validity of certain summaries or comments online for people who said they were there. We can debate whether that's a reliable source of information, but it is what we've got, so we're going to run with it. We're not going to question the memory clarity of these people. And yes, we could note that it would certainly be a lot easier for George to change a whole lot if no one has actually read the chapters. So much of this will surely be changed when we reach it, but that's just things to bear in mind again. What we do have are general summaries that appear to be generally agreed upon, so we'll take what we can from that with the same approach that we have to take into all these preview chapters, and then we'll see how it meshes with Tyrion 2, which does have a released transcript or manuscript, whatever you want to call it, and therefore can be treated a lot more normally. 
But before we get into the summary and start digging for that treasure, there's one more thing that we can't really do, and it happens to be one of our favourites here on the aisle, unfortunately. We can't talk about chapter sequencing. I know, why am I even bothering them? Because chapter sequencing is the best. But of all the many things we don't know about wins and these chapters specifically, one of the most prominent is where do they actually go? Where they all fit in the actual book and where they all fit in conjunction with each other, we know none of that, or nearly none anyway, which takes away a lot of our favourite talking points. Some of these chapters that we'll cover over the next few weeks, we can at least get a vague idea because, well, because some of them are bunched near each other, like today's Tyrion chapter being a prime example, given that Barristan and Victorian are basically sharing the same space and the same subject in the Battle of the Fire, which we know to be pretty near the beginning based on everything at the end of Dance. For example, we know Tyrion 1 is going to come after Victorian 1, or it's very likely to, based on context, but that's about as far as we can get. What's happening in the book elsewhere at the same time, what chapters are going to be before and after each specific chapter, what might be happening around all these different characters is very much up in the air, but hey, there we are. That's what we've got again. No, we can't look at where they are in the arc as much as normal and all that good stuff, but then you can only do that so much of opening chapters anyway. Besides, at some point, we just have to embrace it. So let us join hands once more, everybody. My wonderful green folk, I thank you again for joining me on another journey as we head into it now. Let's do so together, as we have so many times before, and begin our way now into uncertain waters. Now, you know what? If my editing skills are up to scratch, then you wouldn't have noticed this, but I actually had to just stop recording for a second there because we had a knock at the door. Turned out to be a delivery of a giant bag of tennis balls for the poorly puppy we've had this week. Well, I go and answer that. I turn round. There's a border collie sat in my seat next to this mic. So this podcast nearly got very, very different. You nearly had a border collie running the show. But luckily, I've managed to wrest back control. But she might come back. Just uh, just be wary. Keep your eyes out. Anyway, where were we? Oh, I say At the beginning. Well, not quite. First, let's do this. Last time on Tyrion Vision. Yes, normally we don't really do recaps, but these are different times, as I've said. We've had a bit of a break from the podcast in general, and the beginning of this book is so much more connected with the end of the last, as we've mentioned, time and time again. So we'll probably do this each time we come across a new POV, just to remind you of where everyone's position it was at the end of Dance, where they're going, and when we meet them again here. But we'll keep it nice and simple and quick. You probably all remember for Tyrion anyway, because he's such a major character, but just in case you don't, here we go. We left Tyrion on the eve of battle. He's managed to buy himself, plus Penny, plus Jorah, out of slavery and into the Second Sons, but he's far from free of danger. This huge battle is coming, and Tyrion has been trying to mentally steal both himself and Penny for what that truly means. Jorah and Mormont, given all that they've seen in the Yunkish camps during their slavery, during recent Tyrion chapters, became convinced that they would definitely be on the losing side, and that Marine would therefore win. Tyrion happened to agree, and he told us what the plan he'd obviously been brewing was as he closed his dance arc. He was going to get the Second Sons to switch back to Marine slash Danny's side. Plots and plans had been major parts of Tyrion's recent resurgence towards the end of Dance. That's how he got himself and his friends out of slavery before it was too late. It was how he persuaded the Second Sons to take them on in truth. And he's been hinting at something else brewing in his mind, while at the same time giving the impression that he feels a sense of ownership over the company as well. He intends to use them in some way. I think Tyrion probably has some long-term thoughts about that as well, but for now, it's just about immediate survival. After Tyrion's final dance chapter, we had three more marine chapters, one from Quentin and two from Sir Barry. Now, Quentin's chapter doesn't really cross over too much with Tyrion's stuff, although it's ultimate consequence of letting the dragons out obviously will, but Barristan's is where we know things have progressed. Galaza Galaire was sent across by Barry, after taking his Dardal, remember, to try and get the hostages back and maybe keep battle at bay for just a little while longer. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, Galaza failed, and Yunkai made the first move into battle, 
by flinging disease-ridden corpses into marine to make everything that little bit more chaotic and to boil over just that little bit quicker. You'll remember from Barrison's final chapter that we took a very, very long leap into what could happen in the Battle of the Fire. That was in that four and a half hour episode, you'll remember. And at times we borrowed from Barry and Victorian preview chapters and just a teeny bit from Tyrion. So you might see a bit of repeat here and there as we move through their chapters, but I'll make efforts to avoid that, of course. But now let's get into the incredibly short surviving summaries and when I say summary, we're talking just a couple of paragraphs here, but let's go for it now as we enter the misty, mysterious realms of Tyrion 1. The chapter reportedly opens with the trebuchets, or the catapults, whatever you want to call them, I'll say trebuchets, still firing, so we've got straight continuation from Barristan's final chapter. Like many other previews, hence probably why they became previews, it looks like this chapter could have fit pretty well into dance if you really wanted it to. But at some point, George had to form his cutoff line, he had to pick which cliffhangers he was going to go with, and, well, we know he did that, we've covered them. The fact that the trebuchets are still firing clearly says Yunkai means business. That wasn't just one warning shot that they were firing at Barristan's closing, they are going full tilt. And that also means a hell of a lot of corpses are landing in Marine, increasing the danger for everybody inside and making Barry have to react all the faster. We aren't told quite yet how many corpses you can fit in a trebuchet for each individual firing, but they seem to be chucking them on the regular, so it looks like it's going to be more than a few. We know how dangerous this disease is. Even if we don't know precisely the mechanics of how it spreads, we can guess that corpses that have died from that disease lying in the streets is going to be pretty bad news. Now we covered this before as we have a lot of this stuff but the city, people in the city have a lot less room to manoeuvre. They can't run, they can't escape and they've got enough political and societal problems going on already. I mean to be fair the pale mayor is already in the city and it's taking multiple victims this is just going to make it even worse even faster marine could very very easily collapse in on itself and the pale mayor could certainly be the leading cause for that so barristan as we'll come to see when we cover his chapters has to try and do something fast indeed when we actually get to the battle his main objective is going to be taking down the trebuchets that's how much of a big deal this is that arguably this corpse slinging thing is more dangerous than actual soldiers with actual weapons so Tyrion is listening to this continuous fire while he sits and plays some savas with brown ben plum recent lottery winner at least in his mind with what has been promised by Tyrion to get himself into the company Tyrion can tell which trebuchet is launching based on its sound. Hmm. I wonder if that will come back to play a part later on. Is this just going to maybe develop into a little mental tick he develops after this battle? It's going to be pretty bad, this battle. It's probably going to stick in his mind, so maybe it will just be a sound he never forgets. Very possible. But from the off, we have the return of Savas yet again. And I don't think George is going to be letting go of this particular literary device just yet. We got a little hint of it in Feast down in Dawn. It was all over the place in Dance, we remember and it looks to continue in winds. We even got hints of it finding a home in King's Landing, so look for it to kick off there as well. Ariane and Tyrion might bring it with them as they approach the city or the continent as well. So I think we can ask, what is the over-under for Savas games that we'll witness in winds? I mean, we might have to save that for a different kind of episode. Well, that might be a question to ask. But personally, I love the instant juxtaposition of this right from the beginning. The biggest battle in the series so far is literally beginning outside the door via this monstrously morbid act of slinging corpses over a wall. And these two men right here, Ben and Tyrion, are dealing with it by just playing at war instead. They're just playing a game right in the middle of the chaos. There's something very funny about that to me. 
Now obviously, Brown Ben is an old hat of battle. He's not going to build himself up before he needs to. You can't have burnout, can you? Tyrion, he's not a stranger to battle, even if he's not on Ben's level, and he'd probably welcome the distraction as well, given all that stress we saw from him last time out. But we also know that this is Tyrion. We've already had our suspicions of a secret plan being enacted, and we also know that he's more than capable of doing a bit of persuading via the game of Savas. Hell, he's done it with this guy in front of him before, so we know that something is up. Now, according to the fan summary, the two are having a lively conversation. We know the sort that Tyrion can get into. And he's also apparently in better spirits and is his old, insufferably witty self, says the summary that I'm reading, which comes from angrygotfan.com, I should mention here as well. But that description fits into what we saw at the end of Dance 2. Old Tyrion was already re-emerging thanks to Penny in large part, but also due to simple time passing and very importantly, a different view of the world given his extremely changed circumstances, the whole fall into slavery and everything else that happened to him. On top of that is the return of his agency, the wheeling, the dealing, the persuading, the acting to a degree. We saw all of that at the end of Dance, so it makes sense that that's been building as well. We know Tyrion has already done some play acting when signing the parchments that got him into the Second Sons, so this is just the next progression of that possibly. Now, whether Tyrion will continue with this re-emergence, or whether he'll tumble back down the path of darkness again come winds, remains a good subject of debate, and one we can start to cover a little bit when we get to Tyrion 2 in a second. The summary writer states that the entire point of this chapter is Tyrion floating the idea of Brown Ben switching sides back to Danny's force and the marine side. He does this while slowly beating Ben at Savas apparently, so we can expect to see something close to what happened with Aegon, likely with a lot of symbolism dropped in there as well. There's many, many ways that Tyrion could make his arguments, lots of different routes of persuasion to take, and we'd be fools to try and guess exactly how the conversation might go to be honest, because George is simply too far above us for that. Safe to say it will be a bit more complicated and nuanced than, if we stay on this side, we'll lose and probably die. This is the main, most important point to sell swords both new and old, but it's not the entire story, especially given the specific situation of Daenerys essentially being Schrodinger's dragon for marine steel. This is the big seesaw upon which near everyone around marine balances. Is she alive or isn't she? Her appearance, or confirmation of her death, could change the direction of everyone, but obviously it's a bit more important for these two characters specifically. For Tyrion, we've got this continuation of the idea he left us with at the end of Dance. A continuation of Jorah thinking they've got no chance, and Tyrion realising that there's no future on this side anyway. Even if everything were to go brilliantly, and they win the battle. He still has the likelihood of being stolen back by the Yunkish slavers, or Brown Ben could change his mind at any time, as likely as that all seems. Even if it goes perfect and he gets back to Westeros, he's still got to pay out of his ear hole for Ben and all of his pals. Which is a much better option than death or slavery, but it's still something to be considered. Besides, he came all this way for Daenerys. That is why he's here, that is why he's been able to get this far. No, he's never been completely sold on being on her side exactly, and his overall motives of vengeance for Westeros and his family are still very much selfish and might have been satisfied by whatever Aegon has been getting up to. And let's also remember, he's only had so much control since Volantis and would have originally preferred to still be of that group with John Connington and everyone else, but the bottom line is that Danny's is the side he wants to be on. He might still be convinced that she can be persuaded to go west. She's still the better avenue to success and waiting on the other side of the wall, it might not be a picnic for him, but is further from slavery and especially further away from disease than he is currently. And that remains true whatever Danny's status is. Yes, it is very much a risk. He doesn't even know if Daenerys will receive him warmly or order his death straight away, for example, but that's how bad the Youngish command structure and the Youngish chances looks. Brown Ben, well, he knows how bad the Junkers formation is as well, but he has even more risk than Tyrion somehow. At least Danny's opinion on Tyrion is vaguely unknown. 
but you don't get to be an old sellsword without remembering exactly what people think of you. And Ben, I'm guessing, will very much remember what he did to Daenerys in terms of his betrayal. And that was one way he took the piss a bit, remember? He took more than he needed to. He really did twist the knife. And she outright told him that there would be vengeance if she ever got the chance. So Ben really has some weighing up to do. And we can expect that to be the back and forth nature of the conversation. Tyrion trying to persuade against these points, these worries. It's not just a matter of surviving the battle and picking the winning side, although that is definitely the big one, obviously. He's also got to weigh up the likelihood of Danny coming back. And if she does, then can her rage be kept at bay? Can she be persuaded that the second sons turning their cloaks yet again swung the battle and helped save her people and therefore can't really be something she's mad about? And that may well be true. Maybe the second sons will do that. We'll have to see later on. Can she be persuaded that the second sons are now so valuable for whatever endeavour is next that Danny can't afford to take vengeance and risk losing them? Or could Ben even persuade her that this is just the nature of their business and that she shouldn't take it personally? Yes, I wouldn't bet on that last option. I don't think that's I don't think that one's going to work, and maybe none of them will. On top of all of this is the extra pressure that Tyrion represents for Brown Ben Plum. He's a literal gold mine that's just landed in Ben's lap. And it'd be really, really annoying to mess up and pick the wrong side now, of all times, when you've finally got a guaranteed lordship waiting for you in Westeros. But does that knowledge make him more cautious or more risky? I'll leave that to you. And something else to consider in all of this, while we're talking about Brown Ben, is his subtle connection to the dragons. That's been the subject of much discussion in the fandom, and many think that that wouldn't have been mentioned unless it was going to be of importance later on. Maybe Ben thinks the same thing. Two dragons are currently loose in Marine. Daenerys is nowhere to be seen. It says some small part of Ben's mind not daring to think that this could be the perfect situation to get himself a dragon. Or if Danny returns, maybe he can rely on this to help her out a bit with said dragons. Remember, a huge part of Ben's original turning to the youngish was Danny refusing to deploy the dragons in battle. She kept them locked up down in the pit. Well, now they're out either way. And though he's probably too wise to think that they can be truly controlled, you'd want to hedge your bets and be on the side that does have two dragons rather than the side that doesn't, wouldn't you? So look for that to play a part in this conversation as well. Now, just keeping with the idea of dragons, there are suggestions about Tyrion's thinking on that. But I should make clear that some of these are now coming from comments, just random comments that I've dug out from the old westros.org forums from people who claim to be there at the actual reading. This isn't something included in the summary itself, so do with that information what you will. I will try not to delve too deeply into those and just keep it to the main summary, but some do stand out. For instance, according to one of these comments, Tyrion, apparently, thinks Daenerys will return on Drogon. Barristan, he fought the same thing, or at least thought that Drogon would return. But that would be very bad news if Drogon came back without Danny. All of them would lose faith, and it would be an even more chaotic moment for everybody, so we definitely don't want that. Now, we readers, we know that Danny is alive, but I suppose that doesn't mean that Drogon could appear without her on one of his hunts before she makes her own way back to Marine, and then he gives the wrong impression, and everyone thinks she's dead, and anything could happen. But probably not that, but it could, couldn't it? We can also ask how Tyrion and Victarion would react to such a sight slash general idea, but in terms of this conversation, I wonder how such a belief from Tyrion would work. Would it be a persuasion that the Marine side will definitely win, and you do not want to be facing her and all three dragons if she does come? Perhaps he suggests if Danny is coming back, then you really want to have done something lately to endear yourself to her. Something like switching sides and fighting in her name. And perhaps Tyrion is also setting up his own self-preservation as well. Maybe he's thinking that if he ever gets dragged in front of Daenerys with accusations about Lannister this and Lannister that flying everywhere, he can say, oh, hang on, wait a minute. It was me that actually got the Second Sons to fight for you again in the first place, so don't be so quick to judge. Now, who knows if that would work, but it'd be nice to have a bit of insurance. 
I've got a couple more of these random comments for you here. One that says this chapter apparently has quite a few funny moments. So, well, that would fit. We have seen those in Tyrion chapters before, and that would help to that juxtaposition I mentioned earlier to this little kind of bubble before the battle actually hit. So yeah, that certainly fits, that works. But there's also another that has confirmation that Ben is worried about Danny taking revenge upon him. But not only that, but also the fact that the Volantines will soon join the battle and swing it back to the Yonkish side. He doesn't want to hop over to Marine just before the backup arrives for the team that you've just abandoned. That would be pretty bad luck, wouldn't it? It'd be pretty foolish. So that works as well. We could easily see that being part of it. But now I'll get back to the actual summary itself. And the critical part of this is that, yet again, apparently, Tyrion isn't only suggesting a switch to the other side, but also the freeing of the marine hostages on the way out as well. And just to jog your memory again, those remaining hostages are Dario, of course, Hero of the Unsullied, and Jogo, the Blood Rider. Yes, R.I.P. Grolio, he's unfortunately no longer with us. So this really is a major development. This is probably the biggest thing we can actually learn from this summary, in fact. We already knew from Dance that Tyrion would be making some kind of pitch about swapping sides, but hostage collecting is completely new and very exciting because we know that Barristan has set up a similar plan for the Windblown and Jerris and Archibald. Now, we can only guess why Tyrion has decided to include this. It might be as another way to impress Daenerys and get in her good books, or at least persuade Brown Ben that this would achieve that. It might be a way to get past the guards or inside the walls, or who knows. No doubt, Tyrion has some other vastly complex plan yet to be revealed. But really, we know the possible collision of two squads slash sellsword companies on the same mission is what we really want to find out about. And I must say, here, thinking about this, something that's never actually occurred to me before popped up that the Dornish duo, our favourites of Jerris Drinkwater and Archibald Ironwood, could also have a pretty big reaction to meeting Tyrion, because he is a Lannister. Now obviously they would have to recognise him for who he is, but that's certainly possible. It's equally possible that Quentin would have had a large reaction if he had survived as well. Obviously he'd have the much larger reason for such a reaction. Even if he doesn't show off that side of his Martell blood as much as everyone else in his family, it still would have lit something inside of him because of that family history. It might have even changed his mind about what he could bring back home to be a success. Yeah, it's really annoying me that I kind of missed that, to be honest. Quentin thinking of himself as a failure, not being able to bring anything home. Okay, well, Tyrion's nowhere near as valuable as Daenerys, but still it'd be something, wouldn't it? Hey, I've brought a Lannister back for you. And no, he's not a Lannister that we know had anything to do with the crimes against our family, but still, it's something I'm sure the Sand Snakes would like to get a hold of Tyrion, and at the very least, they could paint him as the reason that Oberyn died, Oberyn having fought for him and died in his trial by combat, so that would be something, wouldn't it? And again, I have to ask, how did I miss that, that what would have happened between those two if they had met? Well, Jairus and Archibald, they could still have similar thoughts because they're going to be trying to do right by Quentin at the moment. Obviously, his death is very, very recent and raw in their minds. So if they see a Lannister enemy of Martell blood, well, they're probably even more invested in honouring that Martell name right now. So what happens if they do cross paths with one of that family's sworn enemies? This is really, really intriguing to me. And I'm very hungry to find out some more about that. I hope it does happen. But overall, how are the two sides going to react to each other should they meet? And we can assume they will run into each other because, well, come on. But I suppose it is possible that one, more likely the windblown, maybe? Maybe not. They could get there to find an empty cell and then be in bigger danger than ever. But let's say they do meet. That's the one we want to talk about. How do they react? Do they join up in aid of a common goal? Do they suspect or betray each other? That's probably the much more likely, isn't it? Do they just start fighting straight out? It could be any one of those options, to be honest. We knew the hostage situation, and remember, this will likely be happening in the middle of this huge bloody battle as well, was going to be important going forward, but tying it to the fates of Tyrion and his friends makes it even more so. Now, we said about the possible connection between Tyrion and the Dornish too, but I also think any conversation between Tyrion and Dario would be, well, interesting to say the least. But what about Jorah and Dario? 
I don't think they're going to be fast friends, are they? No, not indeed. And let's also remember, Dario swore vengeance upon Brown Ben, so we have to see if he'll stick to that either before or after he gets released. Whatever happens, this could be a pretty monumental moment if the Tattered Prince, Brown Ben Plum, and Dario Naharis are all in the same room all at once. That's three of the biggest sellsword companies going, all mixed together. Maybe they do join together just for a little while to really turn the tide. Now, I do think there's bound to be some betrayal in there also because, well, that's just the nature of these people. And let's throw in an unseen plot of Tyrions as well, just to really get it all mixing together. The summary I'm looking at doesn't give us any more than that, but it simply states Ben is concerned about the wealth the Yunkish are wasting. It doesn't detail if this refers to the rejected offer made by Barristan slash Galaza at the end of Dance, but it makes sense that it does. Remember, part of Barry's plan about all that was that if the offer was rejected, the sellswords would hear about it and not be happy, for they'd treasure gold above all else. So that seems to be exactly what's happened. And that'd be very cool to see one of Barristan's shrewder ideas pay off so quickly. The summary also mentions that Ben does not reject the idea immediately, this idea of switching sides, which hints that that's exactly what they're going to do, and it will therefore lead us in to Tyrion 2. Before that, we have one short paragraph detailing the end of the chapter, which apparently involves the spotting of sails, and everyone assuming that this is the Volantine fleet that is still to arrive, and then actually realising, no, 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 it is Victorian's Iron Fleet that they realise that due to their sails. Hence telling us that this chapter comes out of Victorian 1, even if we're doing it slightly differently. He also has dragon banners apparently, and though I'm not sure where he gets them, we might have to refer to that Victorian chapter. No doubt there'll be hordes more information involved when we actually get our hands properly on Tyrion 1, but that's about it for now, so let's move on to more solid footing, somewhat, in Tyrion 2, our actual chapter to read through. Although actually I do have just one more comment, this random comment that was on these old forums. Apparently there's also the suggestion that the hostages themselves will soon be loaded onto the trebuchets, and we did discuss that possibility back in dance, so that adds a nice little time element to it all as well. Let's do it, let's do our normal thing. Let's go to Tyrion 2. Okay, get yourselves comfy. Now we are on much more familiar ground. This is what we're used to, isn't it, everyone? This is much more scrappy and scrolly. We've got a written chapter in front of us. We've got something to go through, some lines to examine, some quotes to say. It just feels right. Good to be back, isn't it? Now, it's still very, very different. Not as different as Tyrion 1 was, but different. We're still guessing. We're still making assumptions. We're still lacking a lot of context, especially in terms of our beloved chapter sequencing. What happened between Tyrion 1 and 2, for example? Was it all Battle of Fire chapters, or did we go clear across the Vale to the Riverlands, Dawn, or somewhere like that? We've got no idea. Perhaps we can work out a little bit of that context as we go through these remaining preview chapters, but it's still a bit weird, and yet so much more familiar. So with these previews, even the ones fully written out like this one, I don't think there's all that much need for preamble or introductions this time. I won't go through what happens overall as much because, like I said earlier, it doesn't have as much of a reread feel in general. It certainly won't be as familiar to you as a normal chapter, like we said. I can personally barely remember them at all. So we'll move through the plot together in case there are any surprises and whatnot that we don't want spoiled. What I will say just before we get going is we do know something of this chapter that's comparable to what we normally say, and that's the length of it. This chapter is four. 4,473 words long for what it's worth. And that would have been the second shortest chapter in Tyrion's dance run. It's also well below his dance average, almost exactly 6,000 words. 
The shortest Tyrion dance chapter was his third, I believe, so fairly early in his arc, like this one, but that beginning is very, very different to this book's, as we know. Though I would say that word count, the low word count, might be because this is a mere preview. Once George is set of his plot and has more connections to put in for later in the book and later in the battle, once there's more meat on the bones, it wouldn't be a surprise to see the eventual word count go up. So that's just something a little bit closer to what we normally talk about to discuss there. But as for what's different, well again, we don't know what's happening at this point in the book, even with this being a second chapter in a POV arc. What we can go ahead and assume is that Tyrion 2 is going to be a ramp up from Tyrion 1 in terms of intensity because that's how battles work. Tyrion 1 will be the build up with the battle largely in the background. Tyrion 2 is probably going to be when the wave spills over, the violence and the chaos rushes in and we start seeing the true cost of everything we discussed in our look forward to this battle at the end of Dance. The poor organisation and the leadership, the extra love affair these people seem to have with death and cruelty and violence, the overextension we're going to see. This is not a half measures type of battle. Everyone will be going for it all the way, nothing left on the table. We spoke a lot about just how bad this could potentially be in the end, and I'm sure it's going to get worse after Tyrion 2, but expect an introduction into that carnage, especially the cost of poor leadership that I've been bringing up for months now. All of that is very, very important for everyone involved, of course. Yes, there's the obvious danger of losing your life, but there's also the gut-wrenching fear. There's the breaking of soldiers, the breaking of men, the long-term trauma that will be earned on this day. There is a lot of horror yet to be witnessed. And like I say, that is true for everyone, but it's especially important for our POV. We've been through two proper battles with Tyrion now, as well as a few skirmishes here and there, and we've seen both the physical and emotional toll they take. For Tyrion, who not only has to deal with the usual terribleness of, of thinking you could die at any time, of having to kill people, which is worse in so many ways, of having to watch people on both sides, friends and enemies, die in gruesome, gruesome ways, all things I cannot get across to you how bad they are in terms of mental and emotional damage, not only does he have all of that, but he has recent memories of battle that are definitely not positive. He nearly died on the Blackwater. Someone on his own bloody side tried to murder him, as well as everyone else on the enemies having a good go as well. That kind of thing is not easy to forget. That betrayal and surprise, the feeling of the ground falling from under your feet like that. He ended up suffering on top of all that, a really key physical disfigurement that messes with his already very, very damaged self-image and how that relates to people around him. We've discussed that loads and loads. And emotionally, the Blackwater is where it all went wrong. Being Hand of the King wasn't a cakewalk, but it was Tyrion at his best. It was his peak. After the Blackwater, all of his contributions, both in the battle or prior, were wiped away publicly. He himself was kept from the public stage. He was cast out of his position as though he had failed at something. He was, well I'm not sure emasculated is quite the word, although there is an element of that of Tywin, but he was definitely reduced or ignored or however you want to put it. Plus, he was mocked and used like a tool, everything with Joffrey got so much worse, until he was eventually accused of his nephew's murder, which then led to the, the big, big spiral down until he got to the actual murder of his father, and then that further spiral that birthed Dark Tyrion in Dance and everything that happened there. So there's just so much to remember from Storm and Dance, all traceable back to that battle, really. And that's all without mentioning the real tough guilt, the weight that came with the Blackwater, from Tyrion realising what part he'd played in sending men off to their death of playing with their lives in some way and yes that was unavoidable for the most part but still realizing it and seeing it in action and being in the middle of it it has an effect it weighs on you certainly 
So it's all big stuff. And though Tyrion doesn't have as much of an emotional connection to this battle, he's just not as involved as he was when he represented King's Landing and was protecting his own family as well as the institution of the crown, so that's good in a way. He's really just got to worry about staying alive and keeping Penny alive as well, we hope, so these things are easier in that regard. But then again, he also has a lot less control. He's completely expendable now. Nobody cares about him. The odds are stacked ever higher and there's, there's just no protecting against the horrors of war. So considering what we said before about George maybe using this battle as his big signal of what Winds is going to be like, the utter madness of the dark that's coming, as well as his see this was worth waiting for signal, we can assume these chapters are going to have plenty to witness. Let's get right down into it, shall we? Let's head into the text. So the first two sentences hit on the two key themes we've just been talking about, death and leadership. We begin with a screaming, dying man. There's not many clearer ways to get across your theme, is there? And that's followed by someone shouting out the order, to horse! An order repeated again and again to get that sense of urgency into our veins straight away. This voice is not from a commander of the Second Sons. It comes from another part of the camp, so we're already reminded of all the many moving parts of this patchwork Yunkish army. The confusion that can be had from the wrong people, hearing different orders and all that kind of stuff, all the many different problems we're going to get from that type of thing. But perhaps most importantly is that this voice, coming from an authority figure, remember, is already high and shrill and full of fear. This battle that's coming up to them now is affecting everyone, even at this early juncture, because this is a massively terrifying thing that's about to happen to all of them, and Tyrion is not beyond admitting, at least to us and himself, that he is scared. So we've got our atmosphere, we've got our urgency, we've got the beginning of our sense of action and movement, and lots of things happening all at once. That's just from one paragraph, yet the second one manages to top it. And the first sentence of that second paragraph is stirring enough. Tyrion's personal preparation. The same as he had to do on the Green Fork and on the Blackwater. Yes, he does have a real river theme, doesn't he? The same as Jamie and plenty of others have had to do as well. Check yourself. Go through the ritual. You've got your horse, you've got your sword and your dagger. Tyrion has a dinted great helm. He has armour meant for a boy that someone's already died in. And none of it exactly inspires courage. None of it is guaranteed to be of any use, but you definitely want them still. So that's good, giving us that sense of build-up and getting ready. But after that, George slash Tyrion gives us a much better image of the overall with a description of the scenery and how it's entwining with the already beginning battle. So let me clear the pipes a bit here. Let's see if I can still do my quoting thing, because you know how much I like that. And we'll kick off these preview chapters with a bit of a biggie. Here's the full quote for you. Dawn had broken, and a sliver of the rising sun was visible behind the city's walls and towers, blindingly bright. To the west, the stars were fading, one by one. Trumpets were blowing along the Skahazadan, warhorns answering from the walls of Marine. A ship was sinking in the river mouth, afire. Dead men and dragons were moving through the sky, whilst warships crashed and clashed on Slaver's Bay. Tyrion could not see them from here, but he could hear the sounds. The crash of hull against hull, the ship slammed together. The deep-throated warhorns of the Ironborn and queer high whistles of Carth. The splintering of oars, the shouts and battle cries, the crash of axe on armour, sword on shield, all mingled with the shrieks of wounded men. Many of the ships were still far out in the bay, so the sounds they made seemed faint and far away. But he knew them all the same. The music of slaughter. So first things first, I know this chapter, or this version of it, was written a long time ago, but clearly George's skill has gone nowhere. What a beautiful, awe-inspiring passage to kick us off. It begins focused on the calmness of night turning into day, and how removed that side of nature is from the squabbles of mere mortals. But then, as the sun rises and lights up the scene, we get the details of the battlefield. Marine waking and making their war noises heard. That's a mere promise at the moment, I believe, but in the opposite direction, we've already moved past promises. The Ironborn from Victarion's chapter are already here, they're already fighting. 
We discussed at the end of the dance their apparent technique of being a bit sneaky and using their captured ships almost as a battering ram until Victorian himself can land and then come and find Daenerys. But Tyrion's not bothered about motives or plans right now, he's concentrating on the sounds of battle, of fights to the death, and of the men already falling here at the beginning of the day. The music of slaughter. That cuts to the bone, doesn't it? That tells us it will be a day of atrocities and ugliness. This inescapable sound that hits right down deep to Tyrion's soul. The one you can't get away from and it's only going to get louder. It's almost like a Mexican wave that will spread from the ships all the way across this huge arena that Tyrion has just so wonderfully described. But it also puts our hearts into conflict. Okay, this news of the Ironborn coming, that's good because it means the Yunkish are losing. And we hate the Yunkish. But we don't really like Victorian either, do we? So that's bad. And Tyrion, for now, is still stuck on the Yunkish side, so double bad. But we do suspect he's going to get across to the Marine side. So if Yunkai are losing, that's good. And you see what I mean. It gets a bit confusing, and this is one of the simpler aspects of this oncoming battle. So again, we have the urgency. Things are already happening just off stage. It's action, action, action all the time. George really wants to get that across. It hasn't reached Tyrion yet, but you don't just stand around and wait. You've got to get ahead of it. You've got to be prepared for when that wave hits. So we've got plenty of tension here from the off. Besides, it's not like everything is completely still where he is. We know that from Tyrion 1. He's a mere 300 yards away from the Wicked Sister, shout out to the Gentleman Bastard sequence there, and is still chucking corpses into Marine. So let's note two things. Tyrion concentrates on the sound of the Wicked Sister, as Tyrion 1 suggested, and along with that, there's the sheer amount of corpses being thrown by these trebuchets. It's entirely morbid, isn't it? Not only imagining how many corpses now in marine but also just at the amazing amount already available the amount of corpses i mean available to the yunkish for this ghoulish grisly exercise when you realize how many people have died as Tyrion watches the corpses fly over the walls he stares over at marine comparing the over there to the over here but the former has one key difference dragons he thinks he can see one stirring against one of the pyramids and i asked the question back in dance whether Tyrion's first sighting of a dragon was going to be a real big deal on page because he'd not had that opportunity when Danny escaped on Drogon he didn't get to see him so do we think this counts as that is this Tyrion's first sight or is it Tyrion actually getting to be near a dragon see him up close for the first time where something interesting might happen that's the only option left to us now really because he's obviously going to spy both of them as they become involved in the battle later on we'll have to wait and see i suppose Tyrion is distracted from his staring by a column of mounted windblown riding past another of the trebuchets so we have that mystery from Tyrion one and barry's last dance chapter returning are the windblown already up to something at this point are they already on a mission to take the hostages and switch sides and then we have the question again of how Tyrion and the Second Sons will react to that later, should they go through with his earlier plan. It's just a nice little nod from George there to get our minds whirring, and to give that sense of many, many things going on behind the scenes and out of shot and just everywhere, this being a hive of activity that you can't possibly keep track of. For now, we have Tyrion breathing in the air, just glad to be out of the tent for once. What a shame he's walking out of that and into a battlefield. And then we have something of a, a meta moment from George. He's spoken often about representing both sides of war or battle in his writing, acknowledging the seductive glory of it while also showing the brutal reality. Tyrion knows of both of those but right here he specifically thinks on how some might be able to see it as something grand while they stand here on the precipice but that he's too smart for that. He knows too much of the reality side. We have this quote. The gods did not fashion me to wield a sword, he thought. So why did they keep putting me in the midst of battle? No one heard, no one answered, no one cared. 
There's a genuine sense of annoyance from Tyrion here, because at a certain point it's like, well, come on, how many times is this actually going to happen? Let's remember that Tyrion has never sought out battle personally. He wound up on the Green Folk by just walking out of the Mountains of the Moon and bumping into his dad. He ruled a city that was about to be attacked by an outside force. He didn't go looking for anything. Yes, he did engineer much of what the Blackwater ended up looking like, but he wasn't marching out the forces of King's Landing to go and conquer somewhere. And obviously he did not choose to be here most of all, so why does he keep getting thrown into war? Why is life so unfair for him? It ties into some of the stress we saw from his final chapter in Dance, the anger at being here again and knowing exactly what that means. The stress is added to because he wants to keep Penny safe and she's not really aware of what it could mean and all that stuff, so this is just speaking to that melancholy for him. Such reflection points him far, far back in the past, all the way to the Green Fork when he first had to stand on the edge of battle. And I believe we mentioned all the way back in Game of Thrones that Tyrion remembered the Green Fork much better than the Blackwater, despite him being much more involved in that second battle and it obviously being more recent. But then there was just so much more happening there and after it as well. Plus he was much closer to death in that one, so you can see why he might forget. Anyway, the reason we said that back then is because of this passage here, because Tyrion literally says it himself here, that he remembers that morning so well, that waking with the horn sounding, how similar it is and yet how different, and how strange it is that he should be in a similar situation except half a world away. Specifically, he remembers the people, Shay and Podrick. Huzzah! Ah, he's much quicker to think of Shay in wins than he was in dance. Well, good job, Tyrion, because we did plenty of complaining about that through dance, that lack of Shay thinking. So here's hoping we get a lot more of it through wins. Now, true, he's not giving her her due, he's instead just thinking in terms of how he was tricked by her, for which I use massive air quotes. Yes, tricked, not the word that I would use, but the one Tyrion's sticking with. But at least he's thinking of her at all when he was so keen to basically ignore her through large parts of dance, which you know I wasn't a great fan of. I won't take you down that whole argument about Shay and all the many thoughts I've got about her again, but, well, you know what I'm talking about. As for Pod, he thinks, I hope he found a better man to serve. Well, it wasn't a man, but he definitely found someone better. It's just nice that Tyrion's thinking kind words about Podrick, who is undoubtedly the best. Tyrion then specifies his memories on his first ever battle. He thinks on the nature of it all, the sights and the sounds. He has this quote. He remembered the folk drifting off the river, wending through the reeds like pale white fingers, and the beauty of that sunrise. He remembered that as well. Stars strewn across a purple sky, the grass glittering like glass with the morning dew, red splendour in the east. It's almost like... With the knowledge that his life could soon be ending, Tyrion becomes hyper-aware of his surroundings. Everything slows and clarifies. We've seen it a thousand times in different films and TV shows. His vision tunnels to the true world around him. He's just done a similar thing here, outside Marine, after all. It's like you truly appreciate your surroundings for the first time. You see the world as it should be. And I'm going to connect that to Sir Eustace Osgrave from the Duncan Egnavella, The Sworn Sword. And I bring that up now because I was lucky enough to recently guess on a Girls Gone Canon Patreon episode all about that novella. And at one point, Sir Eustace, he recalls the great and mighty battle of the Blackfire Rebellion, the Red Grass Field. And he goes on a very, very poetic, beautiful spiel about the sight and sound of the nature and how it looked and the sky and just this picture that was painted above this horrible, gruesome actual scene. And that was in the middle of the actual battle as well. It's not even beforehand like Tyrion is. That's a really, really wonderful passage that we'll discuss another time. Now back to Tyrion. He also remembers the specifics. Shay's touch, his famous helm that we always remember with a fair bit of fondness as well as finally chiding himself for being fooled, big air quotes, by Shea again. So at least he's thinking about that even if he's not particularly enlightened about it. Mainly it's about that feeling of looking stupid, the cause of that feeling being what kept him alive. He'll take that deal again if it comes along today. 
But for now, he's brought back to the present. That wave is coming, and you can't spend too long dwelling on the past. That call for horses back at the beginning of the chapter is now sweeping through the camp. The second sons are all getting ready with their own mounts, but they are doing it with no rush, no sense of dread. This is what they are for, after all. This is what a sellsword company does. They must have done it a hundred times, and they've got to be used to it by now. But as Septon Maribold once told us, and probably plenty of other characters as well, you can never be completely used to it. You'll always have that fear, that trepidation, that acute sense of being and stillness, no matter if you've fought in a hundred battles or in one. And Tyrion sees the evidence of that as well. There's still some, possible, drinking to calm themselves, there's still people saying farewell to their lovers, just the same as Tyrion did with his first battle. As he looks around, he sees people distracting themselves by grooming their horse, or reflecting on those who once fought and fell in times gone by. We see that in Kem, the King's Landing Boy that you'll remember. Although we should note that Tyrion is full on guessing about what they're thinking on by now. There's just many more throughout the camp doing their own thing thing their own way, though the majority will secretly be having probably the same thoughts as all the others, well I hope I don't die. Tyrion picks out Snatch from the crowd because he reminds him of Bronn, which is another element from that first battle on the Green Fork. Specifically, he thinks, Sir Bronn of the Blackwater now, unless my sisters killed him. That might not be quite so simple as she thinks. Oh, how very intuitive from Tyrion there. For many of us suspect that Cersei versus Bronn will come up in some way during Winds of Winter, considering Bronn's taking a Stokeworth in Feast and everything that was left there. And don't forget they might be involved in those many claimants to Rosby that Pycelle wasn't allowed to talk about in the dance epilogue. Tyrion keeps up with the reflection, thinking back on all he survived through those first two battles, all the damage he was able to inflict. He even tries to frame it as glory for half a second, though that comes with a tinge of Tyrion sarcasm even inside his own skull. Whether that was genuine or not, the truth of the matter comes out when Tyrion admits the prospect of another battle makes his blood run cold. With all the places he's been, people he's met, plot points he's been through, through more than anyone else, nothing compares to the dread of what is coming. And most important from that idea is this, all the time telling himself that he did not care whether he lived or died, only to find out he cared quite a lot after all. That's an important quote. We knew this from multiple evidences gathered in dance, whether it be in the storm that they sank him or the time spent in his slavery, but it's kind of wonderful to see him address it himself in this manner. Yes, Tyrion has done many evil things that we should be no rush to forget, but we also do want him to find some way to make up for those things and for him to find his way back to normalcy. This is a big part of this, even if such a path is never so straight, and this battle could derail it in many more ways than simple death. Case in point, even as Tyrion rouses himself with this, the stranger had mounted his pale mare and was riding towards them with his sword in hand, but Tyrion Lannister did not care to meet with him again. Not now, not yet, not this day. Even with that, he immediately answers himself with a list of his, and Tywin's, crimes. Hooray, more Shea focus. And he also tells himself that he doesn't deserve to even live. So make no mistake, this is not an easy costume change. The path is winding. Much darkness lives on in Tyrion in many forms. He cannot simply switch back to a good person and a good character in our eyes. Now, based on past experiences, we're probably pretty worried that Tyrion's thoughts turn so dark just as Penny enters the scene in the chapter, because his thinking on certain subjects, namely Tywin, is nearly always followed by some kind of outburst, and we don't wish to see Penny suffer such. Luckily, that's not what happens this time out, at least at the beginning, as Tyrion heads back inside the tent. Penny is dressed in the armour that was made such a focus of Tyrion's final dance chapter, and he actually makes a pretty astute observation that Penny has been dressing in fake armour for most of her life, and it's only now that she really needs the proper stuff. Yeah, that's a good point, we should have thought of that. Tyrion goes on to report what he knows, though he keeps himself on a lower vibe for the explanation. It boils down to, they are in the middle, which is safe for now, but won't be for long. There's one battle on the bay, the one we know to be Victorian, and the Ironborn. There's one beneath the walls, 
which we figure to be Barrison's charge, even if we haven't specifically come to cover that yet. One of them, or both of them, are going to spill over soon, and the fighting and the hell will really begin for him and Penny. Privately, he thinks back on the subject material from Tyrion 1, the switching of sides. Whatever happened in that Savas game must have been effective but far from conclusive, as he still worries if Brown Ben will actually make the leap. Indeed, he believes that if he doesn't, then there is no outcome in which they survive. So it's a good technique from George to keep the tension running throughout the chapter. Will they make the switch? When Tyrion tells Penny to don her helm, she refuses unless they get him in any armour at all because he hasn't got any right now, which is a nice little nod to the obvious care they have for each other even in these stressful times. But then we get something perhaps unexpected. Penny will help dress Tyrion in his armour. Now this is an important act, it's one we've seen and discussed before. Sometimes it's the near holy act or ritual again of a squire helping his knight, but the most famous example we have is Brienne dressing Renly in all his beautiful armour mere moments before it all proves to be useless in front of a shadow. You might remember that was one of my favourite scenes from Clash, it's really really something. Obviously there is a romantic element there, at least on the one side, and perhaps there's still one to be uncovered between these two, Tyrion and Penny, but I don't think circumstances will ever allow for that, even if it is true, and whenever it's come up before, it's been entirely one-sided as well so this isn't a direct replay of what that was for Brienne there's just too many complexities in this relationship between Penny and Tyrion but there is still some significance maybe even some tenderness in the act though Tyrion might really be as clueless to it as Renly was his main concern is getting his hands on some wine because he absolutely does not want to face what is ahead without it but it seems he's drunk it all already the previous day that checks out, that sounds like Tyrion. We even have a moment of joy when Penny makes Tyrion laugh with a joke about Cersei. So it's just endearing, it's a lovely moment between the two, and we should probably appreciate that because there's not likely going to be many of them going forward. Besides, Tyrion still gets annoyed with the fact that Groat, Penny's brother, found Cersei beautiful. He doesn't like that. Without wine to occupy him during the dressing, Tyrion moves to speaking of tactics. Perhaps because he really needs some distraction over what's coming their way, but whatever the reason, here is where we get our first whiff of multiple orders being given in different directions to different people and no one knowing what they are doing or, much worse, undermining each other's efforts without even knowing it. Now, I've been going on and on and on about this for ages. I know you're probably sick of me talking about it, but it's just so infuriating how stupid they all are. We've seen hints of it before, but now we're really, really going to get the hard evidence. So the first news is that Pudding Face wants to use the second sons against the Ironborn, and this should really be our first exclamation point. Do you really want to ride into a devastating battle under the orders of someone called Pudding Face? No, no you do not. Tyrion, unsurprisingly, does not agree with Pudding Face, who I keep mentally picturing as like the moon pie guy. He says that all of their horse should have been used against the Unsullied instead, before they set up their shield wall, which is the formation that makes them so unbeatable. And this is something that Barristan worried about in dance, so we know that Tyrion's on the right lines here, and it's just good to see that he's retained his tactical mind. At the very least, he thinks the three major sellsword companies could have been used to attack the flanks of the Unsullied before they set up, and then boom, if that's achieved, the Marine's biggest asset is already done. Or maybe Tyrion's just thinking that, because it gets him a lot closer to the walls. Now Penny agrees with us here, suggesting that Tyrion should be the commander for Yunkai. Tyrion says this, That would ruin the contest though. This is just a Savas game to the wise masters. We're the pieces. My, 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 is Tyrion going to start his own podcast? He's really coming through with the good takes today, isn't he? His pre-battle clarification is just going into overdrive. And he's not done there either, as he makes the rather apt comparison between Tywin Lannister and the Junker Slavers. Tyrion is talking in terms of battle tactics, but I think overall, it's pretty dead on. They are both pretty evil. But as for those battle tactics, Tyrion returns to the Green Fork again, focusing on the look of it once more. Everything looking great and wonderful in the scenery. And then there's Tywin's armour and Tywin's horse, when really... 
It was actually not beautiful at all, it was a horrific sight of death beneath Tyrion, one that he watched from afar and never risked himself for. Hence, there's this idea of toys, of playing with men's lives as if they were nothing. And again, like we said, Tyrion had his own battle with that during the Blackwater. Of course, the interesting part is that Tyrion here voluntarily compares himself to Tywin, which saves us the trouble because we're doing that all the time. So certainly he's become at least a little more self-aware, but it's very, very interesting for all the comments we constantly make. I think there's an element of jealousy here as well. Tywin was afforded that right to never risk his life because he was a Lannister, he was in charge. Well, Tyrion was a Lannister, but he never got that right. He never got to use his armour, although he did have some back at Castle Rock. He never got to have the Grand Horse or just sit back and watch. In the Green Fork, he even suspected his father of putting him in the most dangerous spot. In the Blackwater, he ended up bleeding and noseless on a bridge of half-burning, half-sinking ships. He was right in the fray of it, and he's about to be in the thick of it all over again now. Tywin never did anything of the sort, as far as we know. And perhaps this is being highlighted for us because of Tyrion's future. We know he wants to command the Second Sons. We've had thoughts about him regaining the Mountain Clansmen at some point. Maybe when he next gets a chance, he will be the Toy Master instead. Or perhaps this is a nod to the fact that Tyrion, while sat at a Savas game, already affected countless lives when he sent Aegon west. Such thoughts are made to wait, however, as Penny switches the plot entirely by taking a chance to kiss Tyrion when he's not expecting it. This has happened before, when they thought they were about to drown in a storm. And back then it troubled Tyrion for it was not something he wanted, and he suspected not something Penny really wanted either. It was more of a last minute thing, a better than thinking about death type of thing. And perhaps that is the case now, given what's coming on the new tide. Tyrion definitely feels the same as he did before, as he tries to come up with an answer that will let Penny down gently, but he comes up empty. He thinks of her tenderly, thinks of her as an open, trusting child, a good person who still, unfortunately in his mind, does not realise the reality of what is waiting outside this tent. And, well... He does not hold back in trying to correct that. Tyrion goes full gore in his painting of the picture. Death, death and more death. A graphic description that is truly horrifying to both Penny and probably us as well. Again, we've had this before. In Tyrion's final chapter, that was very much the point of that chapter. Trying to wake Penny up and get her to realise the truth of the situation. So if we maybe think there's some crossover in chapters or that certain things might disappear from this preview, this might be a good candidate. Then again, it makes complete sense that Tyrion would double down, that he'd really want to get that message across now that it's literally happening and Penny is still looking to disappear into a world of kisses. We also previously had the discussion of whether Tyrion was cruel to be like that with Penny, especially when you know, she's asked for none of this, none of it is her fault. But to be honest, I still mostly stick by the idea that no, it wasn't cruel, although of course the slap was a step too far. But this is Tyrion trying to help her still, that harsh as it is, that's just the situation, that's just the requirement. And that does apply here too, even if it's about to get so much worse. And in fairness, Tyrion puts himself on the same level. He admits the terror that comes from being between Victorian and Barristan and still being on the wrong damn side. So it's perfectly reasonable and it's a good way to get across what he means. Like I said, that's all fine, but then it goes downhill. Yes, we wanted more Shea focusing wins, but we did not want this. Tyrion isn't acting when he says he's terrified, it's bloody true. And the stress of not only keeping himself alive, but poor, innocent Penny, along with the knowledge that there's an incredibly high chance he'll fail, is getting to him, as we saw back in Dance. And perhaps that thinking on Tywin and past crimes has bubbled up after all. So that combination leads us to a very, very bad reaction when he begins comparing Penny to Shay. Now obviously Penny is completely clueless about any of this. She's as genuine as they come. And she tries to boost him up. She tries to tell him that he can be brave. But Tyrion reacts like this. My giant of Lannister, he heard. She is mocking me. He almost slapped her again. Uh-oh. Probably the worst, most heartbreaking part of all of this is Penny instantly recognising that Tyrion is angry and then immediately apologising and feeling bad about it. Let's remember what this moment is actually like for her. 
She obviously has no business being within 100 miles of a battlefield. She chose to be here even less than Tyrion did, and she's only here because of a massive tragedy in the first place. Her whole world has been stolen from her multiple times now. She's surrounded by thousands and thousands and thousands of men and soldiers who could kill her before she even blinks. And out of all of them, there seems to be one, a single one, that cares for her, who might help protect her, or at least just hold her as all these bad things arrive. She's got one pebble to hold onto and a beach full of them, and now she thinks she's made that one angry. So just imagine that feeling for a second, that your lone link could turn his back on you too. It's utterly, utterly heartbreaking to imagine. And she's honest again, saying that she's frightened, but that only makes matters worse in Tyrion's mind, because half the world away, another woman once said the same thing to him. Of course, what Tyrion discounts is how many thousands and thousands of women have had to say those exact words countless times because of the situation this society puts them in, but I suppose we can't delve too far into that right now. With those words, Tyrion undergoes a truly harrowing mental meltdown, is the way to put it, as all of his Shay issues suddenly seem to erupt all at once. He's reliving his murder of her. He is absolutely consumed by such anger that he genuinely thinks about murdering Penny too. Just let that settle in for a second. There's no other way to put it, the guy loses his mind. The mist descends, he literally loses sight of the world. So this is very, very concerning to read both for Penny and anyone else that Tyrion comes into contact with if he's capable of this happening. I imagine it's an incredibly tough passage to read for a good many people. The shouting about violence against women and anger and violence in general is deafening in this passage. It's awful. It's awful. It's really, really tough read. It's not nice at all. It really isn't. And we need to note that Tyrion does not pull himself out of this. He doesn't wake up and have clarity again. He doesn't think, what the hell am I doing? He just gets distracted. So again, it's incredibly concerning for what's to come later in the book. Tyrion is clearly still holding on to heaps of Shay stuff, along with all of his other issues he's got to carry around. And he's clearly far away from being healed or turned or however you want to word it. The dark Tyrion persona is unfortunately still just a step away. Yes, it's a high pressure situation and it's sure to draw out the worst emotions, but still, it's not good. I believe that maybe Tyrion thinks it's unfair, on some level, that Penny doesn't have to bear the same weight as him, that she doesn't have the same responsibility of looking after someone else and she doesn't really realize what's coming and he alone has to kind of bear it all and he's the one who saved them i think maybe that's just that form of jealousy coming through again now i've seen it suggested in the fandom that this is a huge sign that Tyrion will end up murdering penny at some point probably sooner rather than later and well that passage is definitely dark enough to make you think it's a possibility it's pretty hard to argue with but i've got to say right here i hope beyond hope that that does not happen Penny dying at all would be incredibly hard to deal with really but in that fashion by Tyrion's hands i don't know if i could handle it then again, it is going to be a dark book, and it doesn't get much darker than that, so it's very, very possible. I guess what we hope is that George wouldn't tempt us with it here if it was actually going to happen so soon, but who can say? We can only hope. Luckily, that distraction does come, so Penny in the interim is safe at least, but this talk of her black rage and everything else is still very concerning. But as distractions go, well, I'll quote it for you. Something's happening, he said. He went outside to discover what it was. Dragons. Yeah, that'll probably do it and dragons, plural as well. So I don't know if this can count as Tyrion's official first meeting with a dragon, but he actually spies both of them at the same time here. Rhaegal is heading out for the bay where the fighting is still fierce, whereas Viserion is taking his lunch from what the Wicked Sister is throwing into Marine, just like they did with the sheep back in the pit. And for what it's worth, if each catapult has been throwing six corpses each time, this is why it says six corpses, for as long as they've been firing, well, that really is a lot of corpses, isn't it? It's a lot of bodies falling into Marine. 
Now at the same time Viserion is doing this, he's also managing to set fire to some of the Yunkish horsemen beneath him, so we've already got a bunch of chaos even before the dragons really get involved. And we did talk a lot about the dragons' involvement and our guesses about this battle back in Dance, so I won't go over that side of things too much here, I don't want to straight up repeat myself, but this is where we got that info from in the first place, so now you know what sparked that entire conversation that we really plunged into. And we will talk about the dragons more at some point, but probably not as much in Tyrion's chapters. Either way, it's quite the sight, it's quite the change in battle. I mean, nothing really compares to seeing a dragon, does it? As we can attest by Inkpots pissing himself at the sight. These people have been hearing about these bloody dragons for months now, but now you actually see them out in the open, ripping corpses apart in midair, shooting jets of fire, and you realise you are really, definitely, on the wrong side. There's every chance that these dragons target everyone equally, but are you going to bet your life on that? Especially when it doesn't save you anyway, you are just as likely as anyone else to be caught in that fire. It would almost be useful for Tyrion's purposes of sending the second son scurrying to switch sides if it wasn't so bloody perilous. The introduction of the dragons into the melee would make this a spectacularly bad time for the younger leadership to show how rubbish it is, wouldn't it? So that's exactly what happens as Puddingface sends a messenger to order the second sons to the bay so they can help repel the ironborn. So firstly, that's the opposite of how Tyrion thinks they should be utilised, we just covered that. But also, we start seeing the logistics at play, probably more than we've ever had in any other battle. The sheer physical restrictions are devastating. Even if we had one constant commander in charge of everything, he'd be somewhere in the middle, sending out all of his many messengers to the many different parts of this army. And while they are all riding hard, matters change, the enemy moves, orders have to be switched. Some arrive at their destination faster than others, the people they deliver the orders to start moving when the commander wants them to do something else. You can see what I'm getting at. It is incredibly tough to organise an army like that. Any army, of any size, these logistics come into play. But this one, with so many different individual components, it's just never going to work. The leadership isn't strong enough. So it doesn't help when this guy arrives and insists on going through the polite motions and using all the proper names and titles and request this and that, when really he just needs to get the information across as soon as possible. Tyrion thinks this foolish, as he mentioned earlier, because they've got no idea about the truth of the enemy they are facing on the bay, whereas Tyrion does. He knows about the Ironborn. Besides, as Inkpots points out, the Second Sons aren't exactly equipped for a naval battle, so they'll either be going to just line up on the docks and try to repel the Ironborn from landing, or the Yunkers have already lost that advantage and the Ironborn are already on land. No, neither is great, is it? But more important to me than the orders themselves is the reveal now of this big management problem and how moronically stupid it is. Brown Ben Plum is with Lady Malaza, the girl general that we met in dance. Evidently, it was her command the day before. But the messenger says it's now Pudding Face's turn, and you begin to see the problem. Half the captains are listening to one person, half to another. One commander will have a point of view and a tactic and a, an approach that's slowly spreading through the camp. Then, at the drop of a hat, someone else comes in with an entirely different vision. If all these guys had Bluetooth headsets, it would be confusing and stupid enough. But with the communications and logistics available to them that we just mentioned, it's madness. It's chaos. It's a really good way to start some infighting. In fairness to Inkpots, he's completely civil to the messenger. He doesn't deny him or challenge him. He says he can't do anything until the boss is here, and he's just not yet. And the messenger says that is not good enough. The battle is joined, we've started, so he should be here. Okay, alright, fine, but a matter of minutes ago, someone else was in charge and summoned him, so he had to go. And there we have the evidence straight off, it just doesn't work. You can't be told off for doing what you were told to do when you had a different boss an hour ago. 
Still, the messenger, he's not having that. He's not happy. Probably because he knows if the order isn't carried out, then he can easily be blamed for not transmitting it properly. Plus, you know, it's a generally stressful situation anyway. Battle is coming. So he wants them to obey even without their leader there, which obviously isn't going to happen. And he's really not helping himself by losing his composure. He's screaming, he's going purple. And thanks to Snatch, we do learn that yes, the Iron Men are already wading ashore and that the Second Sons are to be used to drive them back. So we also see a bit more of Victarian's plan in the blocking of the river with a fire ship. Not a thousand miles from the Blackwater, really, is it? And we've got a pretty funny exchange where the men of the second sons can't even remember which commander is which that tells you all you need to know the messenger decides he's made enough of an effort to cover his own backside so toss is a threat that he's going to tell on them as though pudding face isn't going to be receiving a thousand muddled messages all at once for the rest of his turn anyway and the second sons all have a goodbye laugh bing potts is the first to remind them that this is no laughing matter then they need to be prepared for whatever orders ben does return with Tyrion, sensing this as his moment to not only have an audience, but one that can still fall on either side of the fence, declares that they are on the losing side, implying that to save their lives, they must switch. And then we get something imperative happening. Jorah Mormont voices his support for Tyrion's idea immediately, with zero hesitation. Maybe some would have been willing to listen to Tyrion straight off, but a whole bunch more would be willing to listen to Jorah. The man has history, he's got a rep, and he looks the part, more than Tyrion does when you get down to it. Jorah does start off the beginning of his endorsement, claiming that they should be switching to getting Daenerys' good books, which is really neither here nor there right now, but he manages to keep their attention for the important bit, free the hostages, claim that this was part of the plan from the beginning, and he'll add his own name to it because he's gone in with Danny. Though obviously he leaves out the whole banishment and betrayal bit, which you would. So Jorah has just kind of popped up in this chapter. We didn't even know he was here. But he comes through an incredibly important time. We assume he was present for some of Tyrion's thinking or plotting in his first chapter, and this is now the enactment of those earlier thoughts. Again, this is pretty invaluable for Tyrion's efforts. He has to give Jorah some thanks for stepping up here. As Tyrion and Jorah's words settle, we get a paragraph now based on their surroundings. We've got another ship burning. Elephants can be heard somewhere. There's the cursed corpse throwers. The battle beneath the walls. Dozens of factors to consider, with two dragons flying above them, ready to change all on a whim. We have the quote, Dragons wield over head their shadows sweeping across the upturned faces of friend and foe alike yes we've got their shadows they're making their mark covering all and no one is safe i think that's what that paragraph is saying we'll probably find out the truth about that in a different chapter for now inkpot says they must wait for ben only he can decide but we can tell that every man out there is listening to those many sounds just listed and how close they're getting and what they should do luckily we as readers don't have to wait too long once ben does return as he summons his captains immediately at the same time they mention that Viserion has gone back to the city but Rhaegal is still flying. He's very interested in all these tiny, active people wondering what they're doing, perhaps wondering if he can start roasting them soon. Thanks to those earlier Savas games, Tyrion is able to gain access to this, this meeting as well, as is Jorah Mormont, assumedly just for his veteran presence. As we might have guessed, Ben has been given completely opposite orders by someone whose time is supposedly up. The girl general says head away from the bay, make for the city, and protect the wicked sister, especially as this is believed to be Sir Barry's target, as we spoke about in Dance. In fact, one trebuchet, the ghost, is already down, and the Harridan might be next, and the long lances have been beaten by Marcellin's freedmen, so we're already getting some real progression in this battle. Things are starting to happen. Jorah approves of Barry's perceived plan, but much more important is Inkbot's question of why they should be following these orders and not the other ones. What of it now being Pudding Face's official turn and all? Apparently, Malaza, the girl general, has just decided to 
ignore that rather critical part of the command agreement. She thinks she knows best, so she's going to keep giving orders, and at least some people will keep obeying her. So the whole thing is even more chaotic now, somehow. It goes to show how certain people cannot be trusted whatsoever to stick to the script in this kind of situation. Even with painful deaths and defeat awaiting, some will still insist on having their turn at the steering wheel, or will convince themselves that they are better than everyone anyway, or whatever it might be. This was never ever going to work. And as Cosporio says, neither of these commanders are actually better than the other one. They're both pretty rubbish, but the ignoring of the already flawed command structure is what makes it a thousand times worse. Just as Inkpots is challenging the logic of using mounted men to defend a fixed position, a complaint that does seem to check out as well, yet another messenger arrives with yet another set of orders. And this one is the sort of Yunkish nobleman that we're well acquainted with by now, and we tend to hate in general. He says that Unsullied are moving towards another of the trebuchets. Bloodbeard and the Kaskari will meet them. While this is happening, the Second Sons are to use their extra mobility, because they've got so many horses, and come at them from behind. So this is the closest we've got to Tyrion's original idea, and sounds like the best idea yet. Though, if the Unsullied have already been allowed time to hunker down, this would definitely spell trouble. But the most important part, as always, is the leader. For these orders come from Morgar Zozerin, the drunken conqueror, someone else claiming ultimate command. And why? It's because Pudding Face turns out to be dead, so someone has to fill in. Now is there agreement on who? Did they bother to make a contingency plan for that eventuality, a leader dying in battle? Is there a solid tree structure to follow here? Has anyone got a flowchart? No, they do not. No doubt everyone is now declaring themselves a leader, those who know about the death anyway. Think of all the hundreds of messengers going across this camp not knowing if they still need to carry those messages, who they need to go back to, or what the hell is happening. Absolutely nobody knows what they're supposed to be doing now. The sun is barely up and the entire thing is broken. Broken entirely and it's only going to get worse. The complete collapse of the Yunkish structure and leadership is bewildering. It really is something to marvel at. Now the interesting part aside from all that is how Pudding Face died. Because it turns out the windblown have turned. Oh yes, so that gets us very interested. It would seem the secret mission of Barris and Selmy, born on the shoulders of the Dornish duo, is working. Although it is perfectly possible the Tattered Prince came to the decision on his own. Either way, perhaps this means they're headed for the hostages, but it definitely means that they've at least turned, which mightily affects the choices of Brown Ben Plum. And this messenger made a critical mistake. There was no way he should have been blabbing about anyone switching sides. Now, they would have found out pretty soon anyway, but don't help them along. Don't tell them the ship is already sinking unless you really want them headed for the railing as well. Ben and the company were already massively considering their chances, and circumstances are now much worse. Marine has gained, Yunkai has lost. It doesn't take a genius to work out the equations currently going off in Ben's skull. So it's likely fitting then that Tyrion provides the final push when the messenger recognises him as an escaped slave and demands he be returned. Ben refuses, and then invites Jorah to make his feelings known. The bear knight does so with his longsword. Yes, there's a thousand other reasons tied into it, but at least some small percentage of this is a company of brothers moving to protect their own. We shouldn't ignore that. It's a small percentage, sure, but it's there. The messenger falls from Jorah's sword and scatters the Savas table just in case we want some more symbolism for the chaos that is coming, and Tyrion bends down to pick up the white dragon piece. He uses the act to declare a side on this battle, but we can easily extrapolate that out into the later things as well. If Aegon is the Black Dragon, being connected with the Black Fires, etc., then this is Tyrion choosing his side of the dance. White makes sense for Danny, given her hair, her silver steed, her association with being good in general. But then this white piece is now stained with the smears of Yunkish blood, which I think we all take to mean as whatever Danny does do from here, it will probably be marked with death. So it is that a remarkably cheered up Tyrion is present for Brown Ben Plum officially declaring that they are switching back and reminding everyone that this was the plan all along. You got it? Make sure everyone knows the story? Yes, okay. The second sons are headed for Marine, 
and the battle will massively shift as a result, hence the end of the chapter. With Tyrion giving this dead messenger a kick and saying, hey, if his breastplate fits, I'm going to have it. Now that might be because of the scene, this breastplate picks, that would definitely fit with Tyrion's style, but it's also just another a confirmation that, hey, we're headed into battle, we've got, we've picked our side, this is what we're going with, let's do it. So that's going to be another marker here early on in wins and in this battle. Now we're really going to be diving into proper, proper battle, I assume, with the following chapters. But we've still got questions here at the end. For instance, are they going to run into the windblown? Well, we're pretty sure they are, but how soon? Both sides seem to be making for it at the same time. So really, are they going to clash over these hostages and what's going to happen there like we discussed earlier? That's really, really important. That's really fascinating to me. I want to see that interaction between these many different characters. If they're going to work together, if that's going to be successful, if one gets cut down. I mean, there's a million possibilities that we'll have to talk about later when we actually find out. But it's also just a massive shift in the early battle for Marine. And we know it's never that easy. We spoke about it already back in Dance. Victorian, he fights everyone. He's not really bothered about these different sides. He's got one thing in his mind. Well, two. He's got Daenerys and he's got the dragons. We'll cover that at a later time when we finally get to Victorian. And we've rounded up the Battle of the Fire chapters in general. We'll talk about what's going to happen. We've also got those dragons. Remember, they can turn everything into fiery chaos as soon as they like. And they could change the entire format of this whole battle. It could be worse than anything we've ever seen. And even if everything does go well, when we've still got those possible atrocities back in the city that we discussed before in terms of Skahaz and Barristan. And well, they would mark any kind of victory at all, wouldn't they? Still, it is going well so far. Danny has two sellsword companies joining her side now and taking them away from Yunkai even more critically. Possibly she'll get the hostages back as well, so at least the better odds for a victory are here, even though it'll still definitely be hard fought and dark and bad. It's going to be bad, we know that. But we've still got a lot of that to come in further chapters. Like I say, we're still going to cover Victorian yet, and we have Barristan to come as well. So there we go. That's the first two Chirin chapters. And okay, we don't really know that much about the first. We have to do a little bit of guesswork there. But the second, well, that's our first jump into the printed versions, the preview versions of The Winds of Winter. And as I said before, George has obviously not lost it. What a brilliant chapter that is. The high emotion, the highest emotion for me comes in that penny passage with Tyrion really disassociating from reality for a second. Like he's back with Shay. He's committing that murder again and the emotional, mental effects from experiencing that they're bad enough for Tyrion but let's let's not focus on him really here because the focus should be on Penny she's the one in danger she's the one in enough danger anyway with the battle let alone whatever's going on in Tyrion's head and yes I really do worry for her safety both yeah, in terms of the battle but also after even if they win and what becomes of Tyrion and her relationship does it really go down that darkest of paths I certainly hope not but then I think we probably get a different Penny anyway because she is about to see some things she's not prepared for and that do change a person even the most hardened soul can crack under these things and Penny is certainly not that so look for her to be a real summation of what George has shown us a thousand times over in terms of innocence happening to or having to witness true atrocities across the whole series Penny can really be a, a roundup and a focus of that in this battle that's about to come because it probably is going to be one of the worst and I, I really can't imagine the final picture which again we will discuss at a later point what Daenerys might come back to what everyone else is going to have to deal with at some point it will be over and these people will have to look around and kind of see what what they've done to each other 
emotional fallout i'm hoping that's a big part of the winds of winter and i think i'm probably right i really do enjoy the the focus on that the consequences i've always argued that that should be a bigger part of things i thought it should have been a bigger part of the show at the end i'm really glad that marvel are seeming to focus on that a lot of the disney plus series if you've been following along with those and i hope george is going to keep that up as well to show that these things last i mean he's done a brilliant job of that before anyway with the broken man speech and everything else but well winds is probably going to be more catastrophic and more damaging than anything else we've seen just yet which is saying something yes what a jolly note to end on but we're jolly in general because we're back here on the aisle that is our first step into these preview chapters we have many more next time we'll be covering barriston which does have a similar issue as this chapter with summaries and then a written chapter but we'll do the same as we've done here and we'll just take our best shot and well we'll start doing some guessing and we'll probably be able to round up a lot more of the the battle talk which we'll get to at a later point so it remains to me to thank you everybody for rejoining again i'm excited about this new era of the other faces like we've discussed earlier not just the wins previews but everything else that's coming i won't lecture you about that again now i'm excited to try some new things and make different pushes and hopefully the community will grow and you'll be able to support us in whatever way you can and everything else like that i'm going to try and move past some of my own uncomfortableness with promotion and we're asking and stuff like that so let me give it a go here let me ask you if you haven't already click that subscribe button or click that like button or whatever you're listening on do leave us a review or a rating if you can and come along and check out the patreon changes are coming there as well and see if there's something that could interest you we'd be happy to have you and welcome you over there and of course always 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 do get in touch let us know your thoughts on these wins preview chapters let us know what you like and don't like and your suggestions and your theories and everything else because we do love to hear from you so keep your ears open for these new episodes coming your way but definitely soon enough we'll be barristan one and two for the winds of winter thank you thank you everybody for waiting for being so patient for coming back to the aisle i hope you're ready for this new era that we're going on i certainly am we look forward to seeing you next time thanks everyone